inspiring stories from around the world. Hey, Paige. Hey, Shayna. What's up? I'm here. I hope I really wish that this was video because I want everybody to know that we have matching pigtails right now. And we do. It's the joy of my morning. It's Monday. <laughs> <laughs> it's Monday. And this is what's giving me joy. It really is. <sighs> Working from home. Okay. Hot topics. Yes. One that I'm very interested to hear from you about. And it's really around the art known as scamming scams. Yes. And in particular, technological scams. Yes. Uh, because in the news recently, there have been two um, stories that I've been following. The first one that I've been following for a long time is around Elizabeth Holmes uh, and Theranos and that whole scam. And she recently was sentenced to 11 plus years in prison for that. Oh. Yikes. Uh, and the second one is our, a guy called Sam Bankman Freed. Yes, Bankman Freed, yeah. Uh, who ran a cryptocurrency exchange that apparently is a complete Ponzi scheme, <laughs> which, you know, wow. that's how it goes sometimes, I guess. So I, I feel like at some point he's going to go to trial. I don't know. Uh, I don't know how these things work. But anyway, what are your thoughts on scams, Paige? Um, I think that there are people who are so good at getting other people to believe in the things that they believe in. Mm -hmm. And those people have existed for a long time. <laughs> no, yeah, I think that there are people who've always been good at the, the game of like deceiving other human beings, giving people something to believe in, um, whether that is people who've decided to set up cults and, you know, kind of gain a following. I think all of these people have similar personalities to be able to sell people stuff. I think in the case of the cryptocurrency, right, that was n probably not that hard of a grift to get people to believe in because it was very hot at the time. Um, as for Elizabeth Holmes, she was just a good saleswoman. Like I've seen the videos of her talking about what she was talking about and like basically pitching to investors. And I would have never given her a dime um, personally, <laughs> just because I'm listening to it all. And I'm like, you're saying a whole lot of absolutely nothing right now. Um, and as somebody who can pick up on a whole lot of nothing, because I do it enough. I just use my powers for good. Um, I can, I feel like I'm really good at pointing. I'm not saying I can never get scammed. I'm just saying it's highly unlikely. And that's where it's going. Interesting. So you've never been scammed? Not like finan financial, like financially? Like a money scam? I'm finan fiscally? <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely oh, not. Paige. <laughs> I, I need documentation of legitimacy. Um, and this is something a friend of mine who is in the crypto thing told me. She was like, oh, you have to be willing to risk money to get money. I'm like, I might never get money because I'm not risking much. Um, these things well, are so fresh, new out the box. I'm, you know, I'm going to give it a minute to see what happens. And this is what's happening. So I'm glad I waited. Okay. Okay. Well, I'm glad for you because I feel like I've been scammed a billion times. <laughs> I um, never learned the lesson. I'm always open. Yes. Oh my God. I get scammed all the time. Shame <laughs> uh, I don't know. I'm just too trusting. I just, I don't know. I'm like, you said that. I believe you. And, and ultimately, like, if it was something that I really cared about, 
I probably wouldn't like take the advice of a stranger. You know what I mean? Like that too. Yeah. I feel like I would be pretty good about asking others for advice around that. But um, but yeah, I've been. I I feel like I feel like life sometimes is just generally a scam. Oh, that there absolutely. I've been scammed multiple times, but um, fiscally, never fiscally, that. fiscally you will not catch me lacking. Fiscally. on the scams no not not I mean these things have been happening forever like I mean I remember when I first got my hotmail account was that your first email account it was hotmail? my first yes it was I think me it was too my- I think my first no it name. wasn't that's a lie I think I had an LOL on it was my point. full name in 876 because I had to let you guys know I was Jamaican um <laughs> at hotmail.com that was iconic um and I remember getting random emails from folks like, you know, I'm a prince and I got this money yesterday and I'd like to give you some. Mm-hmm. You don't know me. Delete. I, I even back then before everybody was like, don't click the links, don't engage. Right. I was just like, I'm always one of those people who if it seems too good to be true, it probably is too good to be true. It's probably okay. a scam. You know, it's probably a scam. No, but people all around the world are getting scammed. It's billions of dollars there's a high, pretty high profile case of um a west african scam artist who ended up living in dubai and the fbi and the cia were involved in finding this individual like people are stealing billions of dollars on the internet in all types of ways i've seen several documentaries where folks just send random invoices to businesses and you know, and, they pay and they pay exactly because somebody is in accounting. They don't know what actually happened in the everyday. Right. You know, Microsoft is sending an invoice and Google sending an invoice. I'm just going to send off that payment. Um, and that's how a lot of these scammers operate or they set up fake investment schemes and do fake charts and send to people. It's a lot of crazy stuff happening. That's there. crazy. Have you been a scammer? Have you been a part of a scam? Never. I'm telling you, I'm just really interested, especially as a Jamaican. Um, scamming is one of those things that has, I don't want to say ruined our financial reputation, but there are a lot of consequences because of it. So like I can't use my debit card online. Some places I have oh, to go wow. through PayPal because my debit card is a Jamaican debit card. You know, and for people who don't have access to the U.S. to be able to set up other bank accounts, it's a serious hassle. Um, There have been several documentaries made on Jamaican scammers. I saw another one on Israeli scammers who set up fake investments and just Mm. send their clients fake charts. I don't know what investments are, but like charts or whatever to say, oh, it's doing well. Give us more money. And after people just hand keep handing money over to them, right, because they're showing you evidence that it's working and then they just dip with people's money. That's crazy. In the in the case of Jamaican scammers, I guess in the when you're looking at it, in relation to people like Elizabeth Holmes, it's minor scams, right? It's minor when okay. you it's up that high because it's a lot of like, you won the lotto. You know, it's a lot of lottery mm-hmm. scamming or, you know, people's credit card informations are mm-hmm. available on the dark web, I've learned, which is why I keep my bank card locked. It's annoying mm-hmm. to keep unlocking it to use it, but what's even more annoying is losing money. Yes. Um, but it's just, you know, cracking people's cards, um, it's something I came across when I lived in Chicago as well. I learned about people doing like it's a global thing. People are just stealing money using the internet. That is a thing that does happen. Well, thanks so much uh, for chatting with me about scams. It's uh, a really 
interesting time in the world and must be using the internet as a force for good not a force for evil don't do that don't, exactly. don't scam don't scam say no to scams say, say no, no to scams say no to scams and say no to scamming say no to scamming <laughs> that part <laughs> um, yeah stop scamming <laughs> anyway um thanks so much thank you uh i'm i'm looking forward to hearing hearing the next segment i, I am as well it's an interesting uh chat happened so yes with our grantee from uh the netherlands uh united way it's uh, a good chat wonderful Hi folks, um, my name is Paige and today I will be interviewing Machel Salomons and he is the executive director of United Way Netherlands. Um, United Way Netherlands is the fiscal sponsor of our grantee TechSoup Global. That just means the folks over at United Way Netherlands are the ones who are actually conducting the project on the ground um, and, you know, being kind of Face fronting with our beneficiaries. Joining Forces is the name of the project, and it's a part of our emergency response program for 2022. Mahel, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. Can we just start by explaining exactly what Project Joining Forces is? Yes, well, the Joining Forces 2022-23 is basically in scale up of the successful experience uh, that we conducted in the Netherlands uh, and Spain, thanks to the help of ISO, whereby vulnerable groups are connected uh, with each other using technology. And, um, well, the project was such a success. The, the basic premise is that uh, isolated elderly, especially during the corona period, um, they were barred from, from seeing uh, family, friends, and they were unfamiliar with the internet, uh, with uh, the options that are available on tablets. So we basically introduced it to them. And not only that, we also mobilized uh, volunteers amongst the refugee community in the Netherlands and in Spain, uh, ensuring that they had weekly meetings, uh, thereby alleviating the uh, isolation and um, unwanted loneliness amongst uh, the seniors, but also promote the integration of the refugees and the migrations and the migrants. And such was the success of the project that here in the Netherlands, um, many, many home for the elderly, but also individual elderly applied for this project in order to also not just get a tablet, but also get the training to meet the volunteers, but to expand it to other countries, including now after, apart from the Netherlands and Spain, Germany, Romania, the UK, and Israel. Nice. Thank you. Um, well, for our listeners, I just want to explain that um, the emergency response program was launched by the Internet Society Foundation in 2020 as a response to the coronavirus. Our aim was to find a way to use technology to alleviate um, some of the, the negative effects of the coronavirus. And one of one of those ways was through this project. Can you talk a bit more about who these vulnerable people are that you're serving? Yeah, well, uh, it depends a little bit uh, per country. So in the Netherlands, in Spain and, and uh, Germany, it's mostly first and second generation migrants. On the one hand, they receive a training on how to be a volunteer. They also receive a certificate 
And on the other hand, we have the isolated elderly, 65 years and older, and um, they are based on a waiting list entitled to receiving uh, a tablet with only one app on it. Uh, it's a WhatsApp. And um, they receive training uh, and they also receive the support because you know, quite often they're so unfamiliar with the basic modalities that they do need the help. So we have also a team in place to offer that help. And then they're introduced to their volunteer uh, counterpart. And then on a weekly basis, they're communicating with each other. In other countries, such as Romania, um, the focus, as far as the volunteers is concerned, on ethnic minorities, including Druze and Arab uh, sections of the population. And in Israel, uh, it's mostly you know, volunteers who live in the more remote areas and who are isolated, but also lacking the infrastructure and connection. Um, in the UK, the emphasis is on people with mental health problems, but the whole idea is, to, of course, the same, you know, bringing those two groups together. And you'd be surprised to see how magnificent the interaction is. Uh, one of the positive spin-offs of this project, which I never realized, is that, for instance, in, in, in the Middle East or in Afghanistan, respect for the elderly is far more significant than in the Netherlands. So, you know, where a normal volunteer would stop uh, to offer his or her uh, advice, so services and counseling, the, the migrant or refugee will actually go all the way to visit them at home and do shopping if necessary, or to walk around in a park if they are, you know, they had operation, they're not really uh, mobile. So, and that's, that's something that is quite, quite rewarding. Plus, on the other hand, the uh, isolated elderly not only have someone to talk to, uh, bring them out of isolation, but what is far more important, they have a sense of belonging because they help the students with day-to-day -day problems that they encounter. They help practice the Dutch or Spanish language to the refugees. They help them uh, opening a bank account or, you know, applying for social services uh, as may be required. And then the last last but not least, which is probably one of the most beautiful spin-offs, well, before this project, some of these elderly had no clue about the internet, about tablets, let alone the use of WhatsApp to communicate. So when they found out and they became fully conversant with the principle, they started to interact with their relatives as far away as in the United States and could see for the first time their own grandchild, which they, especially during the corona, were unable to see. So the, the, the impact is yeah, probably one of the most significant that I've seen uh, in, a, in a long, long time. No, yeah, that's really good to hear. I remember reading an article recently. I'm not, I can't remember where I read it, but it spoke about the societal benefits and the personal benefits of cross-generational interactions and cross-generational, I guess, multi-generational friendships as well, and all the positive benefits from that. So that's really amazing to see that in the in the project. How do you go about recruiting these volunteers, or how do they yeah, get involved? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now that is an um, that's indeed an, um, a very good question. Uh, in the beginning. It proved to be a challenge because, um, you know, not all refugees were equipped with a mobile phone and that was suitable to have this uh, communication. Uh, but we found a partner that was willing to support these volunteers, um, giving them an, a laptop or a, a tablet. Hewitt Packard, for instance, is such a partner. And Lenovo. And also, uh, over time, uh, you know, they got better uh, telephones and mobile phones, so they, they participated. Secondly... Uh, you know, we have quite a lot of partners in the private sector, uh, corporates, um, that offer 
internships, and even jobs, such as Salesforce, Total Energies, uh, Microsoft, uh, Google, and you name it. We have 50 partners. So what we told the volunteers, in total honesty and fairness, that in the Netherlands, uh, when you do have experience as a volunteer, when you have served the community, you have an added advantage over your fellow applicants. And uh, as a result of that, uh, we could you know, present you as first uh, candidates for these programs. And that's exactly what happened. Those who volunteered participated in mentoring program uh, for Salesforce and Total Energies. And some of them actually acquired a job by now. Still continuing the volunteer work. That's one aspect uh, to it. But the other aspect is, of course, the fact that elderly, uh, you know, they get dementia or they lose interest or they die or relatives, let's say, borrow the tablets. But that's why we have a very good uh, monitoring system in place to assess the number of phone calls that take place uh, on a weekly basis. And if we discern that, for instance, the tablet has not been used for a period of more than one month, our social workers pay a visit and try to find out what the reason is. And of course, if they don't use it, we, we get it back. And we also set up an, um, a priority list, so it will simply go to, to the next one. But we anticipated was that quite a number of tablets would break down in the process, you know. But that, that rarely happened. Somehow or another, uh, there were not too many problems experienced with regards to uh, these uh, tablets being uh, destroyed or adversely affected. And also on occasions when the software wouldn't work, uh, we're very pleased to tell you that uh, the counterparts reacted promptly to make it work and also give the explanation on the way. Yeah, that sounds great. Um, I have a question for you about the sustainability of the project. You know, you would have introduced these volunteers to these um, vulnerable groups and people would have built relationships. Are there any plans for the sustainability of the of the project to kind of keep this going? Yeah, um, obviously, as a result of uh, the first uh, phase, the uh, year 2021-22, we learned quite a few things. And the lessons learned were applied in a workshop that we held with uh, our new partner, Compan. And so one of these things that we learned was the importance of maintaining a databases of users, but also people who apply for it in order to secure that sustainability. So that if people die or give up, that the tablet is not just wasted somewhere in a corner, but is given to a new one. Secondly, in our um, outreach to, to the donor, we present uh, this uh, project as our flagship operation, one of the most rewarding projects that we have in our stock. And we have already been approached by a number of corporations, IT corporations, that have expressed an interest to support this, um, you know, uh, with either hardware or software or money. So you, you may not know this, but in the Netherlands, for instance, but also in Spain, there is a, a significant phenomenon uh, occurring, and only people getting older. And uh, as a result... Uh, a million people, and that, that's quite a lot, are regarded as isolated elderly. And by the year 2030, we expect half the population to fall in the category uh, as 60 and older. And, um, you know, we already have to think ahead of uh, how we're going to address the needs of, of these groups. Because in this individualistic society, the elderly are getting older 
and they do not necessarily you know make more and new friends and expand their their network and their relationships so that's why this is such a unique thing because what we have experienced and what we apply here can be used for future people who uh, meet the, the age threshold and uh, we also try to you know make as much publicity as possible of, of it and as a result, a number of home of the elderly, as I mentioned it earlier, have already approached us. Can we can we enroll? And uh, we are, we were apart from Amsterdam. We're now in The Hague. That sounds amazing. I have to add something else. So again, a totally unexpected spin-off of this project. You know, the Netherlands is one of the countries that has been inundated by refugees from the Ukraine following the invasion by Russia and that territory. We have now close to one hundred thousand. And we have been active since the beginning, helping because the majority of the refugees are women to identify what their own needs are and then also uh, cater for those needs. As it turned out, um, mental health is a big problem. And uh, we have these therapists and clients, as they are called, are meeting each other regularly. But we also have uh, work and employment programs. And uh, amongst those women refugees from the Ukraine, uh, you know, since we have more than 500 members now and every day more people apply, uh, the first thing we ask is whether they are keen to participate. So at uh, this time we have actually now a waiting list of uh, refugees waiting to participate in this project. They are enrolled in English and in Dutch classes. And, you know, it goes relatively quick. You'd be, you'd be surprised how, how quickly they are capable to learn the language and, and to, to integrate. So... There you see actually the best results imaginable. Well, that's amazing to see the project growing and, and expanding and kind of just being very dynamic in that way. That's really exciting. Well, thank you so much um, for joining me and chatting about the project. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you. So do I. I always enjoy it very much. And please never hesitate to contact uh, me or my colleagues uh, on the subject because, you know, of all the decisions that you have taken, I know that you have been our closest friend and supporter. And without you, we wouldn't be where we are right now. But I want you to know that even at a very young age, like you have, you've managed because of your judgment to make a significant impact on a sizable uh, uh, part of the population. Perhaps I can give you some statistics, which we collected. There are now a total of 1,550 beneficiaries. There are 550 seniors. There are about 1,000 volunteers and 550 devices have been uh, distributed. More than 22,000 hours of interventions have been recorded and we realized 27 workshops. Uh, so this is quite uh, um, an, an achievement. So thanks to you. Uh, yes, yes, it is. Thank you. This, you know, this is the brainchild of of your organization, um, and we thought it was a phenomenal thing to get behind and support. Um, so thank you for coming up with this amazing, amazingly relevant idea. You're more than welcome, and we'll stay in touch with each other. Come and visit us in the Netherlands. You're yes. always a welcome guest, eh? Yes, thank you. I have to. Yep. I, I would definitely love to visit the Netherlands. Okay. Hi, Remy. Hey, Paige. Nice to see you. It's nice to see you. How did you enjoy the interview? 
Okay, talk about one of the most wholesome projects I think I've ever heard in my entire life. It was so interesting. It was really amazing to hear all the stuff that they had planned out. It felt like they really did their research and checked a lot of boxes on the project that they were working on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, extremely well thought out and so so necessary, you know, to be able to connect folks in in the time of COVID, especially older folks who, you know, are probably not necessarily using the internet as much to be able to use that medium to connect them to volunteers and then possibly having them connect to their family or whatever. I think it's just phenomenal idea. Absolutely. And especially with COVID, there was a huge learning curve for all of us having to migrate online, especially traditional systems that weren't meant to be online to begin with. I think about the challenges of just migrating some of my educational programs online and someone who I hope to be a little bit tech savvy and the struggles that I had getting used to that and even the technical requirements of having systems that could run those softwares in order to do it and internet speeds fast enough. We had to upgrade our home Wi-Fi because we couldn't even run some of the softwares that they had. So it really, really was a testament to how much they thought about what needed to be done and how they could address the needs of people. But one of the things that it really made me think about, and one of the things that you did get into in the podcast was some of these questions about the digital divide and how Mm -hmm. we see them manifested in everyday life. Obviously, there's a digital divide in a global geopolitical sense of some countries having more access to technology and internet, but also at a more micro level where within communities, there's different levels of access. How have you seen that play out in your everyday life throughout COVID and now as we're moving outside of it? Yeah, I think especially living in Jamaica, it's very clear to see that there, I think the connection gap both has to do with age for obvious reasons, um, but also location. So I think the over 50% of Jamaicans are connected to the internet. That is for sure. Um, I think the specific figure may be closer to 60, maybe even pushing up into 70. And the vast majority of those people, I would assume, are people who live in urban Jamaica. I think there's an urban, there's an urban rural divide um, in terms of people who are connected. And I think there's definitely that age divide. And I think even throughout COVID and having to migrate online, like we all did globally for maybe a year and a half, two years, there's still some backtracking of that. So a lot of those things have still stuck around, the delivery apps, those kinds, but a lot of the other things have kind of fallen back into what they were for one reason or another, but I would assume to accommodate folks who are not connected or can't afford a connection. I remember throughout the pandemic, I would be helping my niece with school and just be visiting her more um, because I had the ability to. And a good friend of my aunt's who was a teacher was, you know, we would talk a lot and she would say that she would have conversations with parents and parents would just say it's either the light bill or the Wi-Fi, right? It's either food or the, like this is, it was such an unexpected expense for people who didn't have, right? Like you and I have been connected. It wasn't, Maybe it was, oh, do I need more data? Mm -hmm. You know, maybe I need a bit less. Do I need more? 
probably more, but for some <laughs> folks, it was, oh, I don't have this thing. Now I have to go and procure it. Um, and that's an additional cost on people who probably don't have it. So as, as a result, a lot of students in the Jamaican educational system have just kind of, for lack of a better word, fallen off the grid because of the digital divide. A hundred percent. And I think about how much of a privilege it is to say like, oh, I can just go to the Wi-Fi company and ask for faster speeds, right? That's something that you have to be in a fairly urban area. You have to be of a certain like economic level in order to afford that, you know, increase in payment for your Wi-Fi bill. And I think in Canada is also kind of an interesting one where we have, where, where I'm based right now, a large portion of the population is online. I want to say it's like 90%. However, we have hit a pretty hard roadblock where that other 10% is really fighting to get access. But because it's in very rural areas where you can imagine in Canada, it's hard to get to. There's mountains, you'd have to fly out there and there's no incentive for large telcos to go out there and set up internet. And as a result, like you said, they've fallen off the grid where it's like, well, we never had access to begin with. And there's no incentive to get these telco companies to come out and build the infrastructure that we need. So how are we supposed to get on board, quote unquote, with this new world that's all online and all remote to begin with? And so that's something that I've been thinking a lot about, especially where where I'm located in Vancouver. And I could imagine that for some of the smaller islands in the Caribbean region, there's similar challenges faced there where how do you incentivize these bigger groups to actually physically bring the infrastructure to create access to begin with, let alone speeds on top of that? Yeah. And then there's the issue of affordability and mm -hmm. the issue of need. Do people, do these people even want the internet? Like, what, mm -hmm. do, you know, are they even interested? Yeah. Just to that point, that's something that I think about a lot. And I was talking about with some of my older family members is need and also what do you need it for? So that was something that I thought was really interesting from the interview that came up was they were so focused on training specific applications first. So it's not so overwhelming. You know, you can imagine I have had this experience in my life too, where, you know, you're handed something brand new and there's so many options of things to do. It's like, how do you even start? There's a huge barrier to entry to begin with. How do I even connect my tablet to the internet to access these things if I have access to it? But also along with that is how do you trust it in an era of so many phishing scams and cybersecurity attacks? It's hard to trust things that happen. So how do we encourage trust in groups that may be nervous about adopting technology in their lives? Or is it even necessary? How do we balance this need of not forcing technology on people who don't want it? But if they do want it, developing trust and security in these systems. I mean, I think it all comes down to utility. I think definitely, yes, we do need to get people's trust, but I think it's utility. I think that if you <laughs> are going to be supplying people with smartphones with certain apps preloaded mm -hmm. on them, 
that might have a very different connotation than you going and and this is why I I'm such a proponent of local responses to local problems because I think while the internet is what it is you can't mm-hmm. just bring that to folks and like you said throw it on them and say well navigate this figure it out don't get mm-hmm. scammed don't bully and you know just figure this out yourself yeah. I think if folks took the time to go into certain communities and if I'm being specific, maybe let's think of a rural community in Jamaica Mm -hmm. and say to these people, well, you know, understand what their lives are like, understand their day-to-day needs and then provide them with hardware and software that helps with those day-to-day needs, then that's Mm -hmm. perfectly acceptable. I think that those people would trust that process, right? Because they would have been in conversation with you about their needs. They would be trusting you. But when you just come with a large phone, tablet, whatever, and you throw it in people's faces and you say, well, use it, you know, there's no, I guess, caretaking. In. And I think that's mm-hmm. why I really like this project, because they thought about their they thought about their beneficiaries in terms of how it's structured. And let's not crowd it with too many apps for people to be overwhelmed. Let us focus on the utility of the technology mm-hmm. and less about, oh, we just need, you know, just just get on there, do stuff, do things, figure it out. It was really about the utility of it. Like the reason for this is to connect with this person, have these mm-hmm. conversations, and this is how we're going to be using it. I think that utility goes into it as well. I think if the technology doesn't feel useful, people won't use it. Yeah, I think that that's a really fair point. And to to what you said about really addressing the needs, that's also one of the things I really liked about this project is they took kind of a twofold approach to addressing loneliness in communities, right? They said, here, this is how you can access online services and platforms to talk to your loved ones while simultaneously fostering relationships with newcomers as well. And so you're giving them platforms online to connect and really feel that familial connection and ask for help or ask to come over, things along those lines. But at the same time, you're meeting a neat, immediate needs too and saying, here's someone who's actually here that is also looking to make connections with people in the community. And you can foster that relationship very much in person as well. And I think United Way and TechSoup have done a really brilliant job in kind of creating that partnership. Yeah, I mean, they've taken control of the technology. I think all too, too too often we play a passive role as people, you know, so we talk about this app, that app, this software, that software as if it's its, its own entity. And it's no human beings built that. Mm-hmm. Um, and if it could and it could have been built differently. Right. But we we are the people that make the technology do the things. The technology isn't alive. It's not operating on its own. <laughs> We hope not. (laughs) No, but, um, you know, just using it for its utility and function. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I mean, to that point, too, like we we've seen so many examples where we've given technology to people, not explicitly you and I, but society as a whole thrown technology onto groups and they've done really negative things with it that have had bad impact on society. And so I think that it's really kind of a range of consequences that you have, like potentially positive as well, but unfortunately, oftentimes negative with some of these other extended consequences like cyberbullying or things that don't immediately come to mind when we think about handing over technology to people. Um, So really having that training in place and that deeper understanding. And I liked that there was kind of a graduation aspect to it that as people became more comfortable, they had access to more applications. 
it makes it feel a little less paternalistic in the sense of this is the only app you can have. This is the only thing that you can do with it. It's saying, no, let's train you on this first. And as you feel more comfortable, and if you want to, we can move forward here. It's always centering that person and saying, we're going to keep it at the level that you feel comfortable with and move with you in partnership as you kind of, for lack of a better term, graduate on to different platforms and different applications as well. No, yeah, I think that this is an example of one of several programs that we have Mm -hmm. um, that is just phenomenally thought out. You can tell that there was a lot of thought and care that that went into this program. Um, And I'm excited to see what comes after it. Hopefully they continue to do this work. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the partnership with some of these newcomer groups, specifically the Ukrainian Women's Association, is a really beautiful partnership between two groups of people that you know are kind of in vulnerable positions and allowing them to connect and have a positive relationship built on community good because you know sometimes when you're surrounded by so much instability knowing that you can go somewhere and you're contributing positively in the community that you're currently living it has a really good effect on your heart and well-being as well so i think like you said it's just a testament to that strategic partnership on their side of really selecting two groups of people and fitting the needs and i'm really excited to see their work as they expand to more countries and Mm -hmm. what those projects will look like and how this can grow and hopefully be replicated in more contexts as well yes i agree thank you absolutely anytime Hello, this next segment is our staff answers segment, uh, where we ask a few of our teammates to answer the question, what is your earliest memory of the internet? Hello, my name is Rayi, and my first memory of the internet relates to playing video games with my friends and using various online messengers to keep in touch with each other while we were figuring out what game to play. Not every game had a great way of communicating in the game, so we would use the messenger while we were playing too sometimes, and um, while we were using the messengers in the first place because we didn't have phones. And we would, yeah, we would play video games with each other after school if we weren't able to hang out in person for whatever reason. My name's Remy, and I'm a grant specialist with ISOC Foundation, and my first memory of the internet was in elementary school. My best friend had a home computer, and we would go over to her house on weekdays, and we would race to the back room, and the first person to touch the keyboard of the computer got to log in to Neopets first, and then we played on their account for the rest of the day. Wow. Thinking about the early days of the internet... I can say for one thing, I was very thankful that it was there. Um, What is my earliest memory? I think I have to say the noise. The noise of connecting to the internet through your ethernet cable. It was a long noise, sometimes a loud noise, but a very happy noise because it meant at any moment I would be connected. My first experience with the internet was most vividly that dial-up tone. My dad had a computer, the huge ones, and it was always going 
Yeah, I'd say that that stands out. PCC is supported by the Internet Society Foundation. 